This is an ABC podcast. What's your relationship with cookbooks? You buy them, flick through them, cook a thing or two, then put them back on that shelf to gather dust with all the others. Some books are an invitation on every page. Life doesn't seem long enough to cook all that's in them. Well, this one... The one I'm holding now, it's it's one of those. It is just scrumptious. And who, you might be wondering, wrote it? <laughs> Stay right there. This is Blueprint for Living. I'm Jonathan Green with your weekly degustation of places, spaces, food, gardens and design. We'll pop into the veggie patch with Paul Bangay, uh, look at Elizabethan treasures from tea towels to teaspoons. Colin Bissett will slide by to talk Teflon. And yes, here's the reveal. We're about to have a long chat with cook and writer Hetty Lou McKinnon. Delicious. I wonder if you have a, a well-worn, food-splattered, uh, dog-eared copy of Hetty Lou McKinnon's Community on your cookbook shelf. I know I do. It gets a lot of use. It's one of those Bible books. Uh, and when that came out, it was a sort of a revelation of flavour and, and cross-cultural combination. Then Hetty brought out Neighbourhood into Asia with love. And now this beautiful thing, it's uh, its an ode to vegetables, family, love, loss. It's her new book. It's called Tender Heart. And it's full of food set out vegetable by vegetable. It tells a story of identity, community and family. Hetty, hello. Hi, Jonathan. You're no stranger to this this <laughs> program. We've had some, some lovely lockdown chats. We have. <laughs> And now we can see each other, which is a bonus. We're actually in a room together. (laughs) We are. How far the world has come. This is such a beautiful grown-up book. Thank you. Grown-up. That's a good description. (laughs) It is. I I felt like a grown-up writing it, actually. I love that way it is vegetable by vegetable. There's an alphabetical list which... It is. Ends in zucchini. What does it begin with? Hang on. Asian greens. Oh, Which is so fitting. (laughs) Asian greens. From Asian greens to zucchini. Yeah. I've long dreamed of writing about Asian greens in this way Hmm. to really break them out of the box. You know, I think that Asian greens are just stir fried or they're steamed. And I just wanted to char them and put them in a galette and just... Give them that personality. When you say galette, so there we go. There suddenly (laughs) is this beautiful possibility of combining European tradition with Asian ingredients and sensibility. Yeah. And these these are the things that are possible. That's right. And it's what I always want to do. I want to push the boundaries of um, particularly Asian greens because it's something I grew up eating and Mm -hmm. something from my culture. And I ate it in a fairly traditional way because I come from a Cantonese household. But... I live in a third world, which has a lot of other influences. So I wanted to bring some of those in. So that was a lot of fun working on that chapter. When did those two worlds start to merge rather than collide for you? When I started cooking. And I say that with absolute (laughs) confidence. confidence. And I often wonder, Jonathan, would I even be here very happily in this third world 
had I not started cooking. Because mm. when food really helped me understand the two identities and how I can exist in a third world that marries those two, but is also something very different, you know. Food is, is the perfect metaphor for how those things can work. Yeah, and it's like a common language for me. Mm. You know, like growing up, I was Chinese at home, Australian when I was outside my home, when I was at school, and then back to being Chinese when I came home from school. And it just felt like this constant push and pull, really, for most of my life until I started cooking 10 years ago, so not even that long ago. Chinese at home in a, in a place full of food. Full of food, full of food. My mum was... She's an immigrant who never worked outside of the house, so food was just her expression, her reason for being. And did she hold tight to very traditional process and and routine? Very traditional. Morning to night was about food for her, you know, preparing food for the next meal, preparing food to go in the freezer for future meals, preserving food for future meals. Her way of expressing herself. But that's such a beautiful way of living a life too. Isn't it a funny thing? Now it's almost only reserved for food professionals. Yeah. It's the way chefs work. Yeah. But people in their homes so rarely get the chance to live that life through the rhythms of food and, and produce. Yeah, I think that, you know, everyone is so busy now, but I often think about chefs and people revere chefs and their techniques and their knowledge. But I'd like to, when I think about it, where do they get those techniques and knowledge? From their mothers. Yeah, I'm thinking a lot of the time it's from their mothers <laughs> and grandmothers and aunts and from kind of that matriarchal line. Um, not always, but a lot of the time. Your dad was the other side of that equation, though, of bringing the, the yeah. produce into the home. Yeah, and it's really so- not something that I'd thought about a lot because I lost my father at a very young age when I was 15 and that's kind of where the book starts. You know, it starts with that loss and exploring the man he was and the way I remembered him, which is through the lens of a child. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of difficult to write about because I was really drawing on memories that felt a really long way away. I felt almost like were those memories validated because they're so old and I was a child when I knew him. But writing this book was hugely healing for me because I kind of discovered the influences of his life for me now in what I do because I've always been told I'm like my mom because she's a great cook and she's the person I grew up with and she's the person I learnt from. But when I think about the things that my dad brought to my life when he was alive, mm. you know, fruits and vegetables that he, he brought was home. working in markets. That's right. He worked at the markets. He went off to work 3 or 4 a.m. every morning, came home at 11 with, you know, crates and boxes <laughs> full of fruits and vegetables and really too much. My mum tells me now that she was intimidated by how much he brought home. But this was just the way I grew up. And it's not something I thought about a lot, like his influence on my food journey. But I think just introducing us to so much variety, there was never that question of eating your vegetables for us as kids. We just did because it was all around us. So Was there one you hated when you were a kid? Not really. <laughs> I kind of ate everything. Isn't that good? And my mum made bitter melon, and I don't love bitter melon. It's probably not good for a Chinese person to say that I don't like bitter melon. You'd but... be cast out. <laughs> Put a 
it with black bean sauce and it's, it's still good. It's still good. For all the hardships and difficulties of, of migrant communities in new cultures, yeah. the, the way many communities find themselves is through food. Yeah. It's exaggerated in their lives. Yes. It becomes the sort of this core of themselves. Yes. Which is in its own way a wonderful thing to have happen. I think it's a gift. And I think at my age now, I can see what a gift it was. I mean, I didn't always see it that way. You know, as a kid, I always just wanted to eat Vegemite sandwiches and, you know, mm. like there was the times that my mum made a steak because, you know, there was maybe once a month she would do a westernised dish, which would be steak and potatoes and frozen peas. And that was her attempt to do something Western, like what other people would eat. And I loved, that was my favourite meal when I was a kid. Did she do that with pride or with resignation? Um, no, she liked to do it hmm. because it kind of made her feel like she was assimilating a little bit. But that's definitely not what we ate on the reg, on the regular. Um, <laughs> but that was like my favourite meal. But now I think back, I was like, oh, that was like, that's not what I remember when I think about the things that she cooked. But it's definitely a gift. I think now I really see that gift and I want to pass it on to my children. Mm. So, Have your children ever eaten meat? Yeah. They eat meat when they're out of the house or when I'm in Australia doing a book tour. <laughs> <laughs> you'll, you'll come back to a, a mound of McDonald's wrappers. Yeah, I, I hear that my daughter is making butter chicken tonight, which she's never made. And I asked her what recipe she was using and she told me she was winging it. So I was okay. like, okay. Hello. Hello. <laughs> because, well, that, that idea of winging it, that goes to, I think, the, the core of your approach to food is... Yeah seeing what's there and what you can do with it and, yeah. and using that sort of knowledge of practice yeah. to make something of that. Yeah, I mean, I'm very lucky. I have a very solid understanding of flavour from the foods that I ate growing up. But, you know, there is a rebellious side of me that just wants to smash it all up and just live without boundaries and almost bring the world together on a plate, which really sums up how I approach yes. food, you know. A splendid cookbook like Tender Heart, for example, so we, we take that. I mean, there are two ways of doing that. You either sit down and you, you follow the instructions mm. or you think about what you're being instructed. Yeah. And that's sort of a different approach. If you if you sat there and, and make these things and think about, oh, that went with that and, yes. oh, I used a bit of that, yeah. then that's something you can take to doing your own thing outside yeah. of that recipe. That's what I always want home cooks to do. I'm not one of those cookbook writers or recipe developers that needs people to be adhering to the rules, I kind of see my recipes as ideas, as stories. Mm. And you take what you want out of that story and you make it your own. And look, there's always going to be the cook that wants to cook a recipe it's ex expressly according to every single instruction and ingredient. I know cooks like that. Yep. And so my recipes will absolutely be delicious. They'll work. That, they will work. <laughs> but if you want to mix it up and do your own thing and bring in your own cultural influences or your own food memories into one of my recipes, I absolutely encourage that, which is why I actually have the substitutions with mm. every single recipe, even though it's a vegetable by vegetable book. In most recipes, you will have a substitution for the vegetable, like another vegetable that would work in this application, and other ingredient substitutions. Some people listening will be going, okay, but where's my meat? 
<laughs> Where is it? <laughs> Who needs it? <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, tell us about that because I'm a bit of an omnivore now, but converted from a very sort of meaty diet quite yeah. a few years ago. And the thing I discovered in that was you have to rewrite your entire approach yes. to what you put on a plate. Yeah. I mean, that sounds obvious, but it's more than just taking something away. You're changing an entire vocabulary. Yeah. I think none of my recipes are about a meat-based idea and then, you know, taking away the the protein, for Mm. example. They're very much conceived around a vegetable. That's what the meal has come together. Which is a retraining of the way a lot of people expect their food to be. Yeah, absolutely. And they're all created to be main meals. You know, they're not sides because having been a vegetarian for 30-something years, I'm not going to be eating a bunch of sides. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a funny thing you say because that's sort of a a vegetarian and not particularly sort of vegetable conscious restaurant. What do you do? You just eat the sides. (laughs) Yeah, the mashed potatoes are good. French fries are good. (laughs) I mean, it's a a wonderful way for people who are perhaps wanting to um, introduce more of a... A vegetable skew. Mm, um, absolutely. I mean, there's a great recipe in there. I was thinking about this morning. I don't know. I, I woke up in Melbourne thinking, I want that butternut lasagna. And it's a lasagna in inverted commas. It's not really a lasagna because it has no pasta in it. But you're replacing the pasta with slices of roasted butternut yes. squash. And I don't do that as a gimmick. Um, it actually adds so much flavour. It's almost something else, but the lasagna just gives you like a visual of how it's constructed. This is how we're going to put this together. Yeah, yeah. it's so good. I encourage you to try it. And you live in, in Brooklyn. Mm. What does that do to your sort of access to seasonality? I, I suspect it's pretty sound, but maybe some yeah. things are tricky. Actually, it's food in New York is hyper-seasonal because of all the markets. So um, they have these farmer's markets that operate year-round, even in the winter. But in the winter, for like three months, you can only buy root vegetables. Yes, but they but still operate. You that's know. what happens. Yeah. <laughs> only in a snowstorm will they not operate. But it's really hyper-seasonal. And like we've just gone through summer there, so it's just been the most incredible time for produce. But... Tender Heart is not about just cooking for vegetables. And I talk about it at the beginning where it's, I really do see seasonality as a luxury Mm. almost. I have a very egalitarian approach to vegetables. You'll go frozen. I go frozen, supermarket mostly. I'm going to say that right here. I shop mostly from the supermarket for my vegetables because if I want broccoli all year round, I'm going to eat broccoli all year round and I'm not precious about the fact it hasn't been grown and from a farm in the last two weeks. I suspect you do want broccoli all year round I do. too. It's a, bit of a, <laughs> it's a bit of a family favourite, isn't it? It is. We eat it a lot and, you know, at least a few times a week. Is it tricky? The broccoli, one of the things in your book is takes a bit of heat to get some um, it does. candying going. For people at home, often home ovens are a bit not quite up to par with some of the sort of technical things that people want to do as as cooks. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing to remember is I'm a home cook. I don't work out of commercial kitchens. So all my recipes are developed in a home with a normal gas cooktop and a normal oven. I think what we have at home is enough to give us what we need. Mm -hmm. 
a hot oven for vegetables is is really nice. You know, it gets that charring going, adds a lot of flavour, and like, don't be afraid to get some colour on those vegetables. But that's such an important thing, I think, in vegetable cooking. Is this yeah. this is where umami lies? Yes, is in in that candied bit on the top exactly. of your broccoli. Yeah, I mean, I think cooking a vegetable properly brings out a lot of that sweetness. Um, but there are certain vegetables like peas, for example, like snow peas and things like that. Just cooking it to the point of just cooked yep. is really nice because you have that crunch and just that kind of fresh sweetness because those vegetables, you can take them too far and they become too soft and they lose their flavours. Is there a vegetable that, that divides your family? Yeah, I think eggplant is the... It's one of my favourites. I crave it, but my kids... Texture? Is that the problem? Yeah. Or like my son, my middle son has this particular um, sensitivity to bitterness. Like he he likes Mm. to say things are bitter, which I think sometimes, you know, I like to lean into the bitterness. Some vegetables do border on that bitter spectrum, like kale, for example. And I actually really love that slight bitterness of kale but um, my son, he has this kind of very sensitive taste buds and he says that eggplant is bitter. So could be the texture too. <laughs> I, I wonder sometimes with, with people like yourself who have a, a love of food and then make it what they do. Is that ever a decision you regret? Does that in any way diminish your enjoyment of the thing that you began just loving? Not at all. Never, actually. Um, I love cooking and I love creating recipes and I love cooking for my family mostly. So when I develop recipes for books or Mm. for like columns and whatever I'm writing for, they're really developed with my family in mind. And like they're going to like some more than others, I'm going to be honest with you, but they really are developed with that in mind. Like what do families want to eat? What's pleasing to a lot of palates? And actually I was in Australia like a month ago visiting family and I didn't really cook for a month other than with my mum, but she was the boss in Did that kitchen. Did you get kitchen. a bit twitchy? Uh, yeah. And I got home <laughs> and I got into the kitchen and I started like working again, working. And I was like, this is my happy place. I just love being in the kitchen. Um, and I'm really lucky, Jonathan, because I don't really have any hobbies. My hobby is my job. <laughs> so I'm pretty lucky. Hetty is blessed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can join Hetty in her happy place uh, by popping in and grabbing a copy of Tenderheart, uh, which is in, in shops now. All the, all the others we mentioned, Community, From Asia with Love. Beautiful books, Hetty. Congratulations on this one. Thank you. Hetty Lou McKinnon, the book Tenderheart. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.